Well, this morning I want to start with a top 10 list. Here are the top 10 things in life that never change. The top 10 things in life that never change. Number 10, everyone is accountable to someone. Yep. Everyone is accountable to someone. Number nine, no one lives forever unless you're raptured. Number eight, you can't please everyone. Have you discovered that yet? Yep. You can't please everyone. Number seven, you'll never catch up with the Joneses. There's always someone a little further along than you. Number six, you can't control what someone else's thinks. That's right. Number five, yesterday. You can't change the past. Number four, where you come from, your origin. Number three, injustice. Can't change that. Life isn't always fair. Number two, pain, a part of living is dealing with hardship. And the number one thing you can't change, the way to heaven. For the way of heaven has never and will never change. God set out the itinerary to heaven at the very onset of history. And the way to get to heaven then is the way to get to heaven today. The way to heaven has never changed. And this is Paul's point here in Romans chapter 4. The gospel that Paul preached in 58 AD was the same gospel that made Abraham right with God in 1800 BC. Nothing over the 2,000 years that separated Paul and Abraham changed or improved the gospel. And there's no alterations or modifications to the gospel over the 2,000 years since. The gospel of God is immutable. We become pleasing to God, not by obeying rules or observing rituals, not by trying, but by trusting. Romans chapter 4 begins, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, Abraham was the most revered figure in Judaism. He was the father of God's people Israel. In fact, the rabbis exaggerated his virtue. The Jewish book of Jubilee claims Abraham was perfect in all his deeds. You see, the Jews assumed that God accepted Abraham because of his goodness and good works. It was his stellar character, his untarnished pedigree, his exemplary morality, his diligent service that gained God's approval. But it was none of the above. If so, Abraham could have boasted. See, Paul does a little scriptural digging to prove his point. He goes back to the beginning of the Torah, back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he flags the very moment that Abraham was declared righteous. He says in verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was chosen by God for one reason only, his faith. You know, it's interesting. You might think that God chose Abraham after one of his triumphs, at one of his high points, when he uprooted his family at God's prompting and moved them from Ur to Cana. 
or when he stood on Mount Moriah and lifted up his knife to sacrifice his promised son Isaac. But neither case won God's acceptance. No, Genesis 15 was not a high mark for Abraham. In fact, at the time he was pouting, he was complaining that he had no heir. Abraham feared that he would die without a son and be forced to leave his wealth to his servant. Yet in his moment of doubt, God spoke to Abraham of that servant. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. At Abraham's lowest moment of deficiency, God blew him away with his sufficiency. God promised Abraham, not only would he have a son, but he would father a nation. And at that moment, Genesis 15 verse 6 records it. Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. It was Abraham's faith that made him right with God. He gained God's approval, not because of a great act on his part, but because of a great promise from God's heart. The father of the Jews pleased God and was accepted by God, not because of a feat, but due to his faith. Paul continues in verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now this sounds like an all-American concept. A good day's work deserves a good day's pay. Pay your workers. None of us are going to argue with that. And though this might be true for the workplace, it doesn't apply to God's kingdom. For if God's favor and thus our salvation can be earned, then that would make God our debtor. And friends, God owes none of us. God is no one's debtor. Thus, salvation can never be earned, Paul says. It's not wages. It's a gift. It's by grace. It's love that's on the house. A person either trusts in their own grit or in God's grace. See, if Abraham could be good enough or pure enough or sure enough or endure enough, then God would be obligated to him. But God owes no one. All his blessings come freely by grace through faith. And thus, verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. It's our faith in God's promise that justifies us and gains for us a right standing with God. This means heaven will be full of hallelujahs, not hallelujahs. Isn't that good? In heaven, it's God who will get the glory. Now verse 6, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now notice Paul now moves forward 800 years in history from 1800 BC, the time of Abraham, to 1000 BC and from one Hebrew hero to another, from Abraham to David to prove again that the way to heaven doesn't change. And he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
And remember, this was written after David's downfall. You remember his terrible sin, his one night stand with Bathsheba, followed by deceit and murder in this ugly cover up. It caused David years of heartache. David had been unrighteous. He had nothing to present to God in the way of good works. And yet God chose to forgive David's sin anyway. He didn't impute or credit his sin to David's account. God hit the clear button on the calculator. Presto, the record of David's sin vanished. God cleared out his memory. And this is what God does for everyone who trusts in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. God does not impute sin. Paul asks, he says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? See, remember the Jews believed the act of circumcision was a requirement for God's favor. Uncircumcised Gentiles could never be accepted or blessed by God. And this kind of thinking is still around, by the way. There are certain deeds or rituals that people feel are prerequisites for God's blessing. There are Christians I know who believe that faith alone gets you to heaven. But if you want God's blessing, you need more than faith. You need to earn it by fill in the blank. For some folks, they fill in the blank with some form of baptism or speaking in tongues or taking communion at certain intervals or how you dress or your music choices or reading a particular Bible translation or attending a certain church. The list can go on and on. But if you don't meet their criteria, you're considered a second-class Christian. Here Paul contends that no rite or ritual or rule can add to our standing with God, that we obtain and we maintain God's approval by faith alone. Remember, it was faith alone that became the battle cry for the great Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholicism had no problem with faith or the blood of Jesus or Christ as mediator or biblical authority. Their issue with Martin Luther and his allies was the word alone. Rather than faith alone, they added good works. Rather than the blood of Christ alone, they added the sacraments. Rather than the priesthood of Jesus alone, they added human priests. Rather than the authority of Scripture alone, they added church tradition. But Paul here in the book of Romans is crystal clear. God's favor is gained by faith and faith alone. Verse 9 tells us, For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Again, he goes back to Genesis. For how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Again, the Jews said that you had to be circumcised to be right with God. But when when did God pronounce Abraham righteous? Was he circumcised? Go back and check the chronology, Paul says. Abraham believes and is declared righteous in Genesis 15 verse 6. Circumcision isn't instituted until Genesis 17, verse 10, a full 14 years later. Circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham being right with God. When he declared, when he was declared right with God, the ritual didn't even exist. 
And likewise, baptism and communion and church attendance and all the add-ons that people want to add to the gospel have nothing to do with our standing with God. They can help us grow, but our relationship with God is established by faith. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. See, circumcision was a sign, like baptism and communion today. It was an outward mark of an inward faith. A sign doesn't confer righteousness. It confirms the righteousness that comes by faith. The uncircumcised Gentiles didn't have the sign, but they had the substance, the faith itself, and it was faith that made them right with God. And thus Abraham became the father of believing Gentiles and believing Jews. For the issue that saves men isn't religious rituals or good works, it's faith. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Here's another argument for righteousness by grace through faith. Abraham was declared righteous 500 years before God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Thus, righteousness preceded the law. Again, he's saying that the way to heaven has always been by faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. The law and the promise are mutually exclusive. See, something can't be purchased and be free at the same time. One would nullify the other. You can't receive salvation through the work of Christ and your own good works. The two don't go together. He says, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. As we discussed back in chapter 3, the law's purpose was to expose sin, not save the sinner. See, without the standard, we would have never known that we were in violation of God's law. You don't know you're speeding if the speed limit isn't posted. But it's not the law that saves us. Therefore, it is of faith, Paul says, that it might be according to grace. You know, it's so sad what I see in some folks. They lack confidence in their relationship with God. You know, you ask them, you said, do you know that God loves you? Well, I think so. Are your sins forgiven? Well, I hope so. Well, are you going to heaven when you die? I guess so. But you see, with God's grace, there is no guesswork. We should find a certainty when our relationship with God depends on his promise, not our performance. You ever play shoots and ladders with the kiddos? They still have this game. They did when my kids were going up. Climb and climb the ladder, get nearer and nearer the prize. But you're always thinking in the back of your mind, one wrong spin and it's down to shoot. And this is how some people view the Christian life. Oh, they're confident as long as they're doing good and they're climbing higher. 
but suddenly they spin into sin and they feel like it's down the chute with them. Grace assures us that we'll never lose our place on the board. Jesus died so that we can always spin again. He forgives us and he doesn't impute our sin to our account. Verse 16, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Whether you're a law-abiding Jew or whether you're a law-ignorant Gentile, the blessings of God are received the same way by the promise of grace. That's why we should follow in Abraham's footsteps and have faith. But the question arises, what is real faith? And to answer that question, Paul examines Abraham's faith. For Abraham doesn't just show us the need for faith, but his example helps us to see what real faith looks like. Verse 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Notice, Abraham believed in an almighty God. One who, ca- one who brings something out of nothing. Do you believe in a God that brings something out of nothing. Say you take an art class and you're told to sculpt a statue, but no one issues you any molding clay. You'd question a teacher's sanity, wouldn't you? Hey, something doesn't come out of nothing, but it can with God. You see, the Bible teaches us that when God created the universe, he did so ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. Even today, when hope is depleted, or there's no spark left in a marriage, or that adult child seems to be a lost cause, or a business is about to go under, our God is still able to bring something out of nothing. And God also specializes in resurrection. Paul says of God, who gives life to the dead, that is dead people, but also dead dreams, and dead relationships, and dead ends. Long before the resurrection of Jesus, as Abraham and Isaac started up that mountain, Abraham told his servant, we will come back, not just I, but we will come back. He believed in resurrection. Isaac was the heir to God's promise, and it puzzled Abraham that the giver of that promise told him to sacrifice the fulfillment of that promise. He rationalized it by believing that God could raise Isaac from the dead. I heard of an old seminary professor who had a surefire way to predict the success of his pastors in training. All he had to do was listen to a single sentence of a sermon. He said, I come to hear if they are big godders or little godders. Some men have a God who can't do miracles, hasn't spoken infallibly, and doesn't intervene for his people. They have a little God. I call them little godders. But there are other men who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He shows himself strong on behalf of them who fear him. These men are big godders and God will bless their ministry. Well, the patriarch Abraham was a big godder. 
And his big God responded to his faith. You know, we all have faith. Yeah, you do. You have faith too. That's right. You get sick and you visit a doctor whose name you can't pronounce. His diplomas you've never verified. The prescription he writes you can't read. It's filled by a pharmacist you've never met. He measures out a chemical compound that you don't understand. From a container you can't see. He puts it in a bottle you can't open. (laughs) And yet you take it. And you expect to get better, don't you? That's faith. See, we all have faith. The only question is the ultimate object of our faith. In Mark 12, 11, verse 22, Jesus declared, have faith in God. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. He believed contrary to hope. According to the Guinness World Records, the oldest woman to birth a baby was from Spain. She was 66 years old when she gave birth. But the Bible tells us that the record actually belongs to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abraham impregnated Sarah at the incredibly old age of 90 years old. Long past menopause, her reproductive chances hopeless. Sarah and Abe hoped in God. Friends said, forget it. Doctors scoffed, impossible. The only urging this couple had was a word from God. God had promised. And they refused to give up on God. Understand, they knew the facts. Faith doesn't deny the facts. It just looks beyond the facts. Faith factors God into the equation. Perhaps it's a sin that you can't shake. Or maybe it's a grim medical diagnosis or a seemingly impossible situation or relationship that's hit the skids. Or maybe it's finances that have dried up and everyone tells you to give up. Stop listening to everyone. God has the final say. Are you listening to him? Have you factored him into the equation? This is faith. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. See, here's faith. Abraham kept acting on God's promise. Though the old boy was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, they kept locking the bedroom door at night. Sarah, at 45 years past menopause, was buying sexy lingerie and home pregnancy tests. She was. Imagine a clerk at Baby Warehouse when they picked out a crib. (laughs) And what a weird baby shower Sarah had. Of all the ladies present, only Sarah believed she was going to have a baby. Understand, true faith isn't passive, it's aggressive. It's faith to the extent that you're willing to act on what you believe. Real faith prays for rain, then it walks out with an umbrella. If it asks for a job, it leaves for the interview and work clothes. See, genuine faith takes things, not as they are, 
but as God promises to make them. God is able to take nothing and make something beautiful. Verse 20, And Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Between the giving and the receiving of Abraham's promise, 25 years elapsed. And yet Abraham refused to waver. You know, often the longer we're required to wait, the more time that transpires, the harder it is to remain confident. The more opportunity there is for doubts to creep in. This is why the opposing team often tries to ice the kicker. I mean, just before the field goal attempt, the coach calls timeout. They want the kicker to have time to think. If the slightest doubt slips in, he might miss the kick. Well, Abraham here refuses to get iced. His faith never wavers. He was fully convinced that God would be faithful. He even gave glory to God in advance. He started giving high fives before his foot struck the ball. Which brings us to verse 22, a wonderful verse. We've read it before. And therefore... It was accounted to him for righteousness. And here is the beauty of the gospel. It never changes. God gives us the righteousness we lack in exchange for the faith that we show. Here faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Of course, if you read the Old Testament here, you have a problem. We're told he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. But have you read the Old Testament? (laughs) Oh boy, that's a wishful thought. Abraham didn't always show what we would call faith. You see, the name Hagar isn't just a pair of slacks. You recall the slave girl? Her name was Hagar. That Sarah sent into the tent as her proxy to have Abraham's baby? Not a lot of faith there. Hagar went in a maid and came out a mom. It was not a bright spot for Abraham. But notice this. Obviously, faith doesn't have to be perfect in order to be effectual. An overall faith includes lapses in faith, apparently. And God forgives those lapses. Remember justification? What does it mean? It means God treats us just as if I'd never sinned, even when I do. All the Old Testament saints were flawed, and they failed at times. But not once will you find an Old Testament sin rehashed in the New Testament. Evidently, when God forgives, he really does forget. Well, we're told, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. With Abraham and David, God set a precedent for us. How they were saved is how we're saved today. The way to heaven doesn't change. It's by faith in Jesus. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. As a believer in Jesus, here is the status I have received. I am justified. Again, you you can't get over the marvelous meaning of this word. God treats me just as if I'd never sinned, even when I do. And he treats me this because of what Jesus has done for me. And when you think about it, justification, it has all these perks on top of the blessing that it actually is. You have peace with God because you're justified. You have access with God because you're justified. You have joy in God because you're justified. You have the hope of God because you're justified. You stand in grace now and in God's glory for all eternity because you've been justified. In fact, God's grace is at work in us now to perfect perfect us, even in our trials. Notice verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. This Greek word for tribulation is the word thalipsis. It means to crush or to squeeze under pressure. And at times God squeezes us, doesn't he? He engineers pressure-packed situations to break us and to shape us into what he wants us to be. And it's vital, when you're getting squeezed, don't try to escape. Throughout my son's recent battle with COVID, I reminded myself over and over again, Sandy, never waste a crisis. Man, if God puts on the squeeze, let him mold you. Let him do what he desires to do. Don't waste that opportunity. We're told knowing that tribulation produces endurance and godly character and optimism. In other words, when God puts the pressure on you, pay attention to the lessons. Let him do his work. And then in verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Here's another perk of justification. The love of God is now poured out into our hearts. Notice God pours out his love by his spirit into our hearts, but he sets out his love by Jesus on the cross. We're speaking of God's love. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once there was a little boy, he was asked to donate blood to his sick sister. He didn't really understand the procedure, but he loved his sis and he would do anything for her. And so when the needle was removed from his arm, the little guy said to the nurse, tell me, When am I going to croak? The little boy had agreed to the blood transfusion, thinking that the procedure would cost him his very life. Now that's love. Yet his brave and selfless act is still short of the degree that Jesus loves us. For Paul says it's one thing to die for someone you love and who loves you. It's a totally different issue to lay down your life for an enemy Notice again, when did God fall in love with you? It was when you were without strength. 
and when you were ungodly, and when we were sinners, even verse 10, when we were enemies, before you cared a rip about God, he demonstrated his love for you on the cross of Christ. Before you showed God the first inkling that you would ever serve him or follow him or love him in return, he went out on a limb, a limb called the cross, to prove he loved you. God didn't wait until you were lovable to start loving you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Imagine such love. On April the 6th, 32 AD, or thereabouts, God made a scene for all heaven and earth to see. Once and for all, he demonstrated his love for us. If you've ever doubted God's love, if you're doubting God's love this morning, he loves you this much, that much. God pours out his love by his spirit, but he sets out his love on the cross. And then verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There is an interesting name for God. It appears in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 9. Jehovah Naka, or the Lord who strikes. Realize God is no pacifist. One day in his wrath, the holy God is going to punish this evil world with a sharp sword. He is the Lord who strikes, but he doesn't want to strike us. God loves us. So in place, in our place, God struck his only son 39 times. His back was slashed with a whip. His brow was pricked with prickly thorns. His hands and his feet perforated with nails. His side pierced and his heart punctured by a spear. And I hope by now you get the point. Jesus was struck so that you don't have to be. The God who strikes became the God who was stricken. Jesus died on a Roman cross to save you and I from the wrath to come and to reconcile us to God. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You see, the Romans, the pagans, they cross their fingers and they hope for the best. But Christians, we hope in the cross. We have confidence. For it is through the cross of Jesus that we have been reconciled and brought back into fellowship with God. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now it's amazing how the actions of one man can change the destiny of millions. On August the 6th, 1945, U.S. President Harry Truman dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese island of Hiroshima. Every building within 4.7 miles of its impact was obliterated. 90,000 people died from that blast. 
Another 320,000 Japanese died from the fallout. And the bomb that Truman dropped changed the world. It ushered in the nuclear era. But in our text, we're dealing here with another atom bomb. An atom bomb. For in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam bombed out. He sinned. He ate the forbidden fruit. And he launched a rebellion against God. This atom bomb is responsible for far more deaths than Truman's bomb. It brought death to all humanity. See, Paul was a rabbi by training, and here his thinking is distinctively Jewish. He uses rabbinical logic to make an important point here. You see, the Hebrews held to a concept of racial solidarity, or what they might call federal headship. It was the idea that one person could act on behalf of a group of people or a whole nation. You recall the Philistine challenge? Rather than waste the thousands of soldiers, why not both sides just send out a champion to fight on behalf of their nation? It ended up being David versus Goliath. But it illustrated how the ancient Hebrews had this one-for-all mentality. And this is Paul's rationale here. One person, a designated representative, can act by proxy for a whole race of people. And thus, when Adam sinned, As the father of the human race, he acted on behalf of all his descendants, and his sin was passed down to his progeny. Here's what happened when Adam bombed. We call it the fall of mankind for a reason. The entire human gene pool became contaminated. Thus, you and I are born with tainted blood. We've become poisoned by sin. You don't have to teach your little kid to cry when he doesn't get his way. They're born selfish. You've heard the expression, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. That's more true than you know. Adam ate the apple, and he became a bad apple. And the Bible teaches that thereafter, every human is born with a sin nature. It's been said, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We inherit our sin from Adam. Ephesians 2 verse 3 puts it, We are by nature children of wrath. Mom, Dad, I hate to break it to you, but that cute, precious, adorable little baby of yours that you tuck in bed each night and kiss goodnight is really a diabolical sinner incognito. Ever bite into an apple and discover a worm inside? There's no hole in the skin. And you wonder, how in the world did that worm get in there? Well, here's what happens. An egg is laid in the apple blossom. And when the worm hatches, it finds itself on the inside of the apple. And so it eats its way out. And this is how sin works. It begins inside us. We are born with sin in our hearts. And it eats its way out into our attitudes and into our actions. You know, it's interesting that an entire football team can get penalized five yards when one man jumps off sides. Well, likewise, because of Adam's bomb, the whole world is born into sin and now subject to death. In a sense, our death warrant 
is written into our birth certificate. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now follow Paul's logic here. For 2,600 years from Adam to Moses, mankind sinned. But because the law had yet to be given, God didn't hold us accountable for our sin. And yet people still died, didn't they? We were still under a death sentence. So if we weren't being punished for our own sin, we must have been suffering from the sin we inherited from Adam. Now, I realize this idea of suffering for someone else's sin sounds unfair to modern ears. But before we accuse God of unethical treatment, consider a few points here. First, what makes you think that you could have done better than Adam? I bet you would have bombed too, probably far worse than Adam. You know, when the U.S. competes in an international track meet, we send our fastest runners to run in the race. If we lose, I don't grumble because I wasn't given a chance. I know the runners that represented our nation are far faster than me. If they lost, I would have lost too. This is how I feel about Adam. He was God's special creation. He was an unmarred man. He had no hang-ups, no hurts. If anyone could have lived a sinless life, it would have been Adam. He was the best humanity had to offer, yet Adam still bombed. And here's another reason we shouldn't buck Paul's logic here. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died... Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. See, if sin enters the world through one man's rebellion, that means salvation can enter the world by one man's righteousness. See, if it were up to us to be sinless and we failed, then only you and I could save ourselves. Then we would have to save ourselves. But since we're sinners due to Adam's sin, we can become righteous through the righteousness of a Savior. In God's wisdom, sin was passed on by one man so that salvation could also be received through one man. And his name is Jesus. Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Through the power of one, Adam, sin reigned in the world. But now through the power of one, Jesus, grace 
reigns in us. And note the contrast here. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus brings justification. In Adam, sin rules. In Jesus, grace abounds. In Adam, there's death. In Christ, there's life. As John Calvin wrote, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Adam's bomb was not nearly as potent as the explosion of grace that's occurred through Jesus Christ. And then chapter 5 closes. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the Greek text reads, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. See, sin can't cause a breach that grace can't bridge. Isn't that wonderful? Here I love the Phillips translation. It reads, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God His grace is wider and deeper still. Understand this. Because of grace, because of what Jesus has done, there's nothing you've done that God can't forgive. Did you hear that? There is nothing you've done that God can't forgive. Because where your sin abounds, God's grace more superabounds. There's nothing you've done He can't forgive if you ask Him. If you ask Him.